Executive Suites with WPRI.com reporter Ted Nisi. Welcome to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi. Always glad to have you with us. Well, today we are uh, talking about two very different companies, but what they have in common is they are innovative and they are only a few years old. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about a very cool uh, business in Pawtucket that is trying to build up Rhode Island's music industry, and we're going to hear all about that. But right now, I'm pleased to be joined by Neil Fine. Neil is founder and CEO of Aquanis, and they are at work on the future of the wind energy industry, which of course is a big topic in Rhode Island. So Neil, thanks for being with me. Thank you for having me, Ted. So uh, first off, I said it's in wind energy, but it's uh, it's more specific and a little more technical than that. So give people the, the thumbnail sketch. What do you do at Aquinas? Sure. Well, I mean, we're focusing on developing new technologies that will help to reduce the cost of wind energy. That's our primary mission. Um, our primary focus in that mission is to develop what's called smart blade technologies that will allow future wind turbines to react quickly to changes in the wind and that will allow the designers to take some mass out of the blades and help reduce the overall cost of wind. The cost is, has gone down, you know, let's probably know 70% over the last uh, 10 years. And that's been a tremendous success. It's led to a tripling of capacity uh, in the United States over that period of time. Uh, but as an industry, we need to continue to innovate. And you guys are, uh, and we actually have a video, which I think will help people yeah. conceptualize what you're working on here. Um, it's an animation you guys put together. It kind of shows what you're trying to do to the blades on the wind turbines. Great. Let's take a look at that and uh, see what you're up to. Our solution features a plasma actuator, which is a thin tape of high strength dielectric material with electrodes on either side. When mounted on a turbine blade, it modifies the local airflow, reacting instantly to changes in the wind. Using software to harness the microflows as the wind hits the blade, Aquanus will give turbine makers the control they need to unlock the potential we know is there with 15 and even 20 megawatt machines. And that was the Statue of Liberty there at the end uh, to show just how big you think these things can get if oh, they, they are very efficient. Oh yeah, the modern, modern uh, turbines have rotor diameters that are larger than the A380, which is the largest commercial aircraft out there. So yeah, uh, historically, the way the industry has brought costs down has been to go bigger and taller, right? Because uh, the larger the rotor diameter is, the more energy each turbine can capture. Uh, the taller it is, the, the, high, the higher the wind speeds and the steadier the wind speeds. There's some economies of scale too, I mean, associated with uh, going larger. If you can capture more energy per turbine, then you need fewer turbines uh, to uh, achieve the same amount of total capacity. Uh, but the industry faces a, a problem uh, because if, they, if this trend is going to continue, then uh, they have to uh, innovate further in order to reduce the effects of unsteady aerodynamic loads. As you saw in the video, that's what we're trying to do. So when we say unsteady, are we thinking about like, what do you do if there's a hurricane or is it just, yeah. you know, the wind, it's five, you know, miles per hour today, it's 25 today and that, what, you know, what are we talking about only extremes or it's is it the day to day? Every day, day to day, turbulence, wind shear, gusts. Uh, so if think about the way a wind turbine you know, is built. It's, uh, you know, every, uh, every blade has to be strong enough to withstand what's called fatigue loads, right? So you know, a blade is going to bend in the wind, and when there's a gust, it's going to bend in reaction to the wind. Uh, so we have to build those blades strong enough to make that fatigue life long, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, this becomes a bigger problem as the 
uh, rotors get larger uh, because you need more mass. More and more mass means more cost. Um, if uh, we could instead uh, design our turbines to react quickly to changes in the wind, then we could design those turbines to have less mass, the blades to have less mass. And uh, it's cascading effect. If you need less mass in the blades, you need less in the hub, nacelle, tower, and foundation. And that's why it's a big deal, and that's why it's disruptive. We are taping this in the middle of 2019, and you just this week, as we're talking, got some exciting news. You are receiving a $1 million federal grant from the Department of Energy. Uh, what are you going to do with it, and how important is it to the company? Oh, it's hugely important. Uh, so uh, I talked about the one, the, the primary focus is on developing these active load control systems, smart blade systems that uh, uh, will go on future wind turbines. This is a clean tech, hard tech. It could take uh, you know, five to 10 years before we see anything of the sort on the term. Uh, an outgrowth of the research was uh, a new technology that has to do with protecting wind turbines from lightning. Um, it's obviously, it's something that we need to do. It's a, it's a $100 million a year problem for the industry. Uh, the systems that they have are effective, but they need to be more effective. And we've come up with a, a simple, inexpensive blade coating that will improve the performance of the lightning protection system, help to transfer the energy from lightning to ground, essentially what, it, what it's uh, aiming to do. That will reduce the damage caused by lightning uh, and reduce the overall downtime due to lightning. And so the DOE has just invested a million dollars uh, towards commercializing that technology. Wow, okay, so that's good. Yeah, you don't want that lightning to take down your wind turbine right. blade while you're up there, out there on the ocean. Okay, well, we have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Neil Fine about the other big federal grant they already got and what they're doing with that. Stick with us on Executive Suite. Welcome back to Executive Suite, I'm Ted Nisi. Later on in the show, we're gonna talk about how the music industry is growing in Pawtucket and one company's work on that front. But right now, please continue the conversation with Neil Fine. He is founder and CEO of the wind energy tech company, Aquanus. And uh, I mentioned before the break, Neil, that you, uh, you just got this $1 million federal grant you're gonna do with trying to protect the blades from lightning, but uh, you already have one for $3.5 million. Uh, and that was a, the very competitive ARPA-E, is for like the yeah. cutting edge research the Department of Energy does. Um, how has that been for the company and, and what have you been doing with that? Oh, it's been fantastic. So we're partnered with uh, TPI Composites here in Rhode Island and uh, University of Texas at Dallas uh, and Sandia National Labs. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge boost um, for us. It's a validation that uh, these ideas that we have are important uh, to the industry. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's, it was extremely competitive. There were 3,000 applicants uh, and 40 awards nationally. So uh, it, was a, it was a tough mountain to climb. Uh, we're thrilled to have, have won it. Uh, kudos to the team, including my, uh, my coworkers at Aquinas and, uh, and my team members as well. So um, you, obviously you are not making the actual huge blades that are going right now on the, those are, those are manufactured by some big companies. Right. Are you getting interest or uh, from them yet? They, you know, they, they are the ones making these, they must see the need or uh, you're at least trying to convince them of the need to put some of these things in place. Absolutely, so uh, we have had discussions with you know, many of the top 10 manufacturers the industry is, uh, it's, inter it's interesting because uh, like 10 companies own 75% you know, of the market, so uh, there's not many customers that we have to convince, but, but it's difficult to get to yeah. the buyers. 
Um, but we have had interest from two of the top ten uh, and have uh, entered into discussions about how to get the path to commercialization with one of them. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the cost, people don't necessarily realize, just as with solar energy, the cost of wind power has, has gone down enormously to, to do it in the last decade yeah. or so, which has right. been a sea change. It's part of why we're seeing more projects on yeah. land and offshore. How, how big do you think the opportunity is, you know, if, if the industry gets the technology right and it's rolled out and the regulations are correct and all the rest? I mean, how much power do you think we could see, conceivably get from wind in the States? Well, wind industry, is, like I mentioned before, it's an unqualified success. It's quadrupled in uh, capacity since 2008. The, the cost of energy has dropped 70%. I was just recently at, uh, the last few days, I was at the RPE Energy Summit and uh, somebody spoke about uh, from a utility in Colorado and they just signed a power purchase agreement for one and a half cents per kilowatt hour for wind, for a wind, uh, a wind farm. So uh, that's, you know, that's obviously what we need to achieve um, we're at seven percent, I think, six and a half to seven percent of our grid demand comes from wind energy today. Uh, there's always been talk about trying to get to twenty percent by 2030. I think we're on track for that as an industry. Uh, now there's talk about trying to get to forty, fifty percent of grid demand from wind energy by 2050. Uh, so these are lofty goals, but it's, uh, like I say, it's, it, we're on track. And so that's why it, it seems like the timing is right to try and disrupt the design of wind turbines to help them achieve, help the industry achieve those goals. And Rhode Island, you know, worked hard uh, originally the Kacheri administration then followed through with the Chafee and Raimondo administrations to try to be on the bleeding edge, they hoped, um, of the wind industry by getting out front on offshore wind in the states. We had the first offshore wind farm, the, the small demonstration project off Block yeah. Island. Now there's some bigger ones in process. Um, are you seeing evidence that the wind industry that round is becoming a hub uh, for offshore as, as state leaders have hoped when they put you know, money into those projects early? I do, see, I do see evidence of that. This is not my area of expertise per se, but uh, uh, we recently had a discussion that was uh, uh, facilitated by uh, Rhode Island Commerce Corporation with some companies that uh, are looking to build offshore, their offshore presence here in Rhode Island. So I do see evidence that uh, we are developing supply chain here, and we obviously want to be part of that supply chain. But I like to brag all the time when I'm in you know, the company of wind turbine people uh, that uh, I'm from Rhode Island because we're the first uh, with an offshore wind farm. And do people know that? Is it well known around oh, the very, country that we, that we the did it first? Are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's around the world. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a big deal. And uh, we obviously, you know, we have some momentum there. And I, I think it's a, uh, I'm very bullish about Rhode Island's uh, participation in this industry. And you and Aquamas actually got some uh, some early uh, state support. You got uh, the Slater Technology Fund, the sort of uh, venture capital fund that, that uh, taxpayer backed, um, gave you a small amount of money early on, and then you got an innovation voucher for yeah. commerce. Um, yeah. And were those helpful? Were those what you needed to? We wouldn't be here today without Slater. Slater is uh, they were first in for for Aquinas. We've had about. Uh, uh, $500,000 in seed funding, uh, and uh, most of that's from Slater, plus one other investor that, that uh, Slater helped bring in. Uh, Thorne Sparkman, the managing director at Slater, has been uh, a tremendous help to Aquinas since day one, uh, helping us to define our, uh, our value prop and talking to potential customers. So uh, obviously wouldn't be here without them. Uh, and that uh, that money, which you said was a small amount, was 
huge to us at the time because it allowed us to uh, to get some early results that then resulted in three and a half million from RPE, uh, two hundred fifty thousand from National Science Foundation, and uh, um, additional, as I mentioned, additional. Uh, uh, venture capital. That's true. Well, those early money, you, may, it's, you want it to be dwarfed later on, but without it, you never get to those bigger numbers right. now. So, all right, Neil Fine, that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll be keeping an eye on Aquinas as they continue their research, but don't go away. Coming up next, Lindsay Lerner from Level Exchange will talk to us about the music industry and what she's up to up in Pawtucket. Stick with us on Executive Suite. Welcome back to Executive Suite. I'm Ted Nisi, and right now I'm pleased to be joined by Lindsay Lerner. Lindsay is the founder of Level Exchange, a music business up in Pawtucket with an interesting business model. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So there's, that's my, uh, that's why I tee you up. Can you give people just a <laughs> sense? Tell us what you do at Level Exchange. Yeah, absolutely. Level Exchange is a co-working and production space, like you said, up in Pawtucket. And uh, we're there most days of the week making music and recording audio, video production, as well as doing a lot of networking events for the local music and the local music industry that we're building here. So walk us through um, so people can understand kind of what, sure. um, how people come to you yeah. and when they do what you do for them, you know. Totally. Uh, walk, yeah, take us through yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we started way back 2015 or so when I was still an undergrad at Bryant. Uh, I originally started out at art school, which was an interesting... Photog, uh, right? Yeah. I was uh, studying photography for a while. Art school dropout ended up at uh, <laughs> ended up at Bryant, of all places, which I think is the antithesis of uh, art school. That is a big swing from an art yeah. school to a business school. And uh, ended up studying anthropology there, which allows for a unique view on uh, the music industry now, and uh, also, I think, allows a lot of uh, empathy for the creative process, which a lot of musicians and uh, creative people come to us with. Uh, but now, over the past five years or so of being in business, a lot of it is, is word of mouth. So typically, artists are coming to us. They're, whether it's you know middle school, high school bands that are just starting out, or they're established musicians who are looking for gigs all the way up through, I do a lot of tour managing on my own uh, with more well-established national, international acts. Uh, but for the local musicians, a lot of them are coming to us, and they're like, I'm really good. What do I do? <laughs> yeah. And then we go through that process with them. And a lot of that is in the form of content creation. That w is what we found is the biggest key to success uh, in today's society where everything, obviously, you know, is very media driven. And so being able to have the high quality content that supports their abilities live is super, super crucial. Talk us through that a little more because sure. I, I, I saw, I've read some of the other interviews you've done and I thought that was mm -hmm. really interesting how, because um, you think of the old fashioned way you think of the music sure. business as someone, you know, you're out doing live hits, it's live <laughs> sets and then suddenly a music, a record label finds you and you put out a record. But now in a way you right. want to, you're trying to get you're trying to do some of the stuff you would have done at that point now yeah. to get to that point, yeah, right? exactly. Absolutely. We started originally in 2015 when I was at Bryant. We were an online platform that facilitated the booking process. So we were matchmaking between local uh, bars, coffee shops, restaurants, and these local musicians. But what was happening was musicians were booking or restaurants were hiring them. And, and that was great, but we weren't getting a ton of people to come out because they weren't really well known. And the restaurant, you know, these local restaurateurs in Providence alone, we have 300 plus restaurants. <laughs> There's, they have more to do than to worry about right. <laughs> their entertainment. And then the musicians, they didn't know enough necessarily to be able to promote themselves in the best way possible. And so when people were going online and they were searching for local music, they were getting really, really poor quality photos, poor quality audio, poor quality video. And people were like, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd rather stay home or do anything else than go and see whatever. 
that is. And so that was really unfortunate as people who are out and we're in the scene and we're seeing the talent, like you said. And so we pivoted uh, a few years ago into matchmaking rather than the bars and the coffee shops and the restaurants, pivoted into matchmaking between photographers, videographers, studio engineers. Obviously, being in a state that has 11 colleges and universities, we've got Brown, RISD, New England Tech, Johnson & Wales. We have all these great schools, all these amazing, talented students, and they're itching to do things and be match made with local musicians. So it's interesting because it sounds like the audience is not as forgiving as you might expect of a you know smaller scale. We're gonna uh, we have some video rolling where we talk of uh, of some of the bands working in your space, but that that people are expecting a fairly high quality production value even from a, yeah. a band that's just starting out or a singer totally, or something. Totally, totally. I think a lot of it it might even be a little bit subconscious. I think people tend to gravitate towards the you know the shiny pretty thing that <laughs> people want to go towards. And so what has been great has been being able to work with not only really really talented musicians but also the photographers, the videographers and the studio engineers and that really has changed our view from very narrowly looking at just the musicians to really holistically looking at the entire industry and being able to put those pieces together to build a platform for all of them. What kind of musicians come through most often at Level Exchange? What genres do you see the most? All of them. I, I have a, a soft spot for hip-hop but uh, we, don't, we don't have a ton of hip-hop artists. We've had a few that have come through. Uh, a lot of singer-songwriters uh, we've been very fortunate enough to work with, but really across the board, everything from metal to R&B to, to hip-hop, everything in between. And anybody who's uh, you've been particularly uh, pleased to see, you know, you've watched them working hard and you see them taking sure. off? Sure. Oh, totally. Uh, Marielle Kraft, is, uh, she's a Rhode Islander. She left us. I'm, I'm still... Still trying to get her back, but uh, she's originally a Rhode Islander. She is doing phenomenally well. She's got new music coming out actually tomorrow, which is super exciting. Uh, but I mean, really, all of the musicians that we work with are, are top notch, and we're working with not only Rhode Island musicians, but musicians from all over the country, especially when they're touring New York to Boston or, or Boston to New York. Uh, one of the biggest issues that Rhode Island has, I think, from the more, the more, the big, the overview level, I think, is that we or because we're so close to New York and Boston, we get we get chipped out of a lot of uh, a lot of the bigger bands because the larger companies like Live Nation they have proximity clauses and musicians simply can't play shows in Boston and play a show here because that's what it says in their contract, which most people don't know. And so if you're looking from a bigger perspective, when you know it's a great act is playing in Boston, you're like, well, why don't they come to the Strand? Why don't they come here? They they can't. They're not allowed to. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. It's not, it's not really for it's them. It's interesting because we, we it's come up before in the show that sure. like the, while there are lots of upsides. Rhode Island's location, mm -hmm. there can actually be downsides of being so close to some True. other very big places. True. But uh, I think we've we've switched it quite a bit rather than looking at that you know top 1% or top 5% of the music industry. We have tons and tons, thousands of very talented musicians here right in Rhode Island. And so we've put our attention on them and that's made a big difference. So um, a thing you've talked about that I think is fascinating is, you know, people are going to hear this and they might think to themselves, oh, uh, we're talking about, you know, the nonprofit art space and everything. Sure. But you're you're very <laughs> focused on this as a business, the music right. as an industry. You know, I, I, people might want to think of like Nashville where you think, oh, this sure. is big business doing Absolutely. music. Um, talk about the, the way people should be thinking about it, how you view this. Sure, well, 100%. I think that was one of the biggest issues that we faced uh, from the beginning is that a lot of people when I'm having conversations with about conversations with them about all of this is they go we start talking about music and then they go to art and they, then they go to nonprofit and that continues to perpetuate this poor starving artist mindset and that's a huge problem in the in the creative space across the board is that it's always like oh well you know it's fun so you don't have to get paid for it mm. and that's that's not the case that's not how you know that's not how Jay-Z and Beyonce get to, get to where, right. where they are this is really looking at the industry from the industry perspective the music industry globally is worth 15 billion dollars and 
Rhode Island is, is missing out on a lot of that. But being in Pawtucket has been phenomenal because it's so small, because obviously we know some things have left Pawtucket, but I think we have a huge opportunity there. The downtown space is ready for the taking. We're in with the Guild. We do live events with every single weekend with them, every Friday, every Saturday, in addition to all of our programming that we have in our space as well. So you're bullish on Pawtucket. It's like, yeah, we know about the <laughs> Bell Club and we know about the hospital and, the, and, and what's going to happen with Hasbro and all that. But but sure. you, you feel good about the city's prospects right now. Oh, 100%. And they've been extremely, extremely helpful. The Guild has been absolutely phenomenal to work with. In addition to working with the Pawtucket Foundation, uh, Jan Brody has been amazing and Gene Boyle over at the mayor's office has been phenomenal and uh, power power team of, of women that they've got going on over there. So um, we, we only have like a minute or so left. Sure. What, there are going to be people watching who maybe they nurse dreams themselves of being a musician or they have a maybe a, a son or daughter or a grandchild yeah. or somebody who, who they think has talent and they want to mm -hmm. do it, but they don't even know where to start and even how to think about it, knowing it's it's not an easy road necessarily. Sure. What's the first advice you give people when you're being, you know, conk beyond just like follow your dreams and practice? What do you <laughs> tell people, you know, brass tacks? Yeah, it's, it's persistence. That's really, really what the music industry takes, in my experience at least. Uh, I think showing up is super, super important and being consistent. So showing up, being persistent, and uh, really just being adamant about what you want. It takes a long time, even for the national acts that I have toured with and been very fortunate to run all over the country with. These are guys and girls that have been putting in the work for between seven and 10 years that are seeing the success. But when you get to that level, it really So even the, the act you hear on the radio, the song that, that becomes a big hit, which sure. feels like, oh, this person just appeared and they're a big hit instantly, um, that's almost never the case. Oh, never. Yeah. <laughs> never, never, never. Uh, I've seen a lot, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of very successful people, and it comes down to really just putting the work in over over time. We have time for just one more, which is, I'm sure. curious what you think of st streaming in the end. Do you think it's it's a positive? <laughs> Do you think it's a negative? Yeah, more than a minute. Yeah, for, for, especially for local, <laughs> for bands that are starting out regionally. Sure. I think that it is a great platform. I know a lot of people have issues with Spotify, but I think when used correctly, it's a tool just like any other. And if you can put in the work to figure out how to use it to your advantage, I was just out touring all the entire month of May with an artist who makes his entire living off of Spotify. So really? it, it can be done. So even though, because you always hear, yeah, it's like a penny for, you know, barely yes, a penny it's for so many. six cents per stream. But. <laughs> But he makes a living off of that because he he's successful. He's got right. enough streams. So exactly. is, is it a problem, though, for the sort of the sure. middle class of bands that it's going to get some streams, but sure. not like it's Beyonce level? I mean, it's just like any other business endeavor. I think a lot of people don't look at musicians as entrepreneurs, but they are. They're essentially, they're small businesses. And looking at them and having the musicians themselves look at themselves very entrepreneurially is super, super important. And you wouldn't have your business run off of one stream of, of, of income. So you need to be able to look at it from all these different streams of income and revenue. All right, Lindsay Lerner turning Pawtucket into Nashville North. She's the founder of Level Exchange. Thank you for being here with Thanks, us, Lindsay, today. And thank you for joining us on Executive Suite. If you missed any of this episode or any other episode of the show, you can catch them all on our website, WPRI.com, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next week on Executive Suite.